Awesome. Uh, my pack wasn't on. That was my fault, not yours. <laughs> oh, hey, if you're new with us, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Zion. So great to have you here. If you're online watching online, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, do us a favor. Uh, just type in where you're from. Say hello. Shout out. We're so glad that you've chosen to be with us. Um, I know right now there's a lot of different things going on in the world. We've got the stuff going on in Ukraine. We've got the tornadoes that happened. And uh, as we came into communion, I was reminded of sometimes it's just tough to see where God is moving. How many of you guys ever struggle with that? I know I do. I know I wrestle with it at times looking and going, you know, God, it feels like things are just literally falling apart. And it's actually in those times that we're, that's when I need to lean in more to the Lord, when I need to come in and, and not because I expect God or I, I'm trying to convince God to move, but I trust that God is still sovereign. Um, so if you're coming with a heavy heart this morning, please know that this is a place for you. We we just finished our Passport to Galatia series, and the last five weeks we were looking at the Holy Spirit. What does a Spirit-filled life look at look like? And, and I want to say this again, is that I truly believe that God cares more about what we do in the natural than we do in the supernatural. And here's what I mean by that. The Apostle Paul said it this way, I'd rather speak one intelligent word than a thousand words in tongues. I believe in the power of the supernatural. I believe in the miraculous. I believe in healing and the gift of tongues and prophecy and words of knowledge. I believe those are all things that the Bible tells us are for today. But here's the bigger part, is that 99% of the Bible is about God moving in the natural world, about God moving in our everyday life, and it's our faithfulness in the natural that opens the door for the supernatural. Amen? And, and so here's why I'm talking about this is, you know, we just talked about the spirit-filled life. We talked about the obstacles to a spirit-filled life. We talked about that you reap what you sow, that if you want a life that pleases the spirit, we have to sow into the things that please the spirit. And as we start this new series, and it's not a Lent series, we are stepping into Lent, but it is not specifically about this, but it is a continuation of what does it look like for us to be a people, a church, a community, a Christian who is saying, God, we want to see your spirit move in us and through us. How many of you want to see the Holy Spirit move in your life? I, I hope you all do. If you don't, it means you're missing out on one of the greatest gifts that you have. And we're going to be looking at through the, the lens of some stories that Jesus tells, but specifically we're going to be talking about the ways that God sometimes has to do breakthrough. He has to break old paradigms to help you to see how God wants to move into the new. And I'll tell you, that's true of me. It's true of us as a church. And, and one of the things that we're seeing that God doing right now in Zion is God is kind of changing some paradigms. God is shifting some things. And, and I believe the reason why we're seeing it is we're trying to be a community who wants to be in touch with where God is moving because at the end of the day, we exist for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's why we're here. And what gets in the way of us is sometimes we're so busy holding on to what was we miss what could become and what God is doing. I, I want to share with you some things that um, really stood out to me. Actually, before I do that, I just want to give a, a big thank you how proud I am of us as a church family. Last week, I extended a challenge for us as a family that we had some needs with Z Kids, and we had several of you who stepped up and vol have volunteered and, and offered your time to be a part of our family. This isn't a volunteer need, it's a family need. So can we just give a big thank you to all those who stepped up? And, and please don't think that we have a, a more than enough. No, if that's an area you feel called to, talk to Kate after service and say, hey, I'd love, I'd love to serve where we can. Um, so I was thinking about this and kind of reminiscing about uh, some things in the past. And I want to show a picture to you and see how many of you uh, can remember this feeling. 
Anybody know what that is? Blockbuster video. How many of you guys remember walking into Blockbuster when it was new release day? And you're like, yeah, and you get there. And I remember, okay, so we went from, uh, we had a VCR. We got that when I was in junior high. And then I remember when we got DVDs and when, when uh, Blockbuster transitioned to DVDs, like every new release, I think it was Friday was new release day. I was like, oh, I can't wait. There's a, a, a feeling, a sense of anticipation. And, and, and this was long before, okay, you younger kids, you're not going to appreciate this. This is before Netflix and Hulu and all that. Like Blockbuster was the place you went or family video, I guess is what you guys had here. How many of you guys went to family video here? Yeah, they just closed down. They ran out of CBD or something. I don't know. And, and then, then this got me thinking about another company. Uh, did you know that in 1975, a guy named Steve Sasson, who was an engineer for Kodak, invented the first digital camera, 1975. This is actually it. 1975. Now think about how far we would have come, but Kodak didn't invest in that. We're going to get into that into a moment. And, and then this last one, and for you tech heads, you're going to appreciate this memory. I remember, how many of you guys remember getting one of these? Palm Pilot. I remember getting the first Palm Pilot. Like, oh my gosh, this thing's incredible. I got it all stored right here. I got my contacts. I got my schedule. And then I stopped using it because I don't, I'm not organized. And now here's the thing. These three companies have all one thing in common. Every single one of them. At one point, they were the leaders in their field. They were the gold standard for who they were, what it meant to be in that field until they weren't. Every single one of them. In 2004, Blockbuster Video was literally at the top of the mountain. They had done what no other organization had done in their field. When cassettes from VHS went to DVD, Blockbuster made that transition. Nobody else did. And in 2004, they had their highest net gains. Now, this was before in 2000, the small little niche company in Silicon Valley by the name of Netflix came on the scene. Now, did you know that in 2000, Netflix came, actually, I think it was 2004, Netflix, uh, president of Netflix came to the president of Blockbuster and said, hey, let's partner. I think there's a great future here. We're online, you're in store. So here's what we're proposing, okay? So what we'll do is this. If you promote us in your store and say, hey, if you want to online, if that's an option, go to Netflix people who come to our online store will push them to Blockbuster. Now, this is before streaming. This is when Netflix was a direct-to-home DVD rental. How many of you guys remember that? And the president of Blockbuster went, no, we're not doing that. That's stupid. People don't want that. Six years later, Blockbuster went bankrupt. Kodak missed a beautiful opportunity in 1975, way ahead of its field. I don't even fathom how they had digital photography. This guy figured it out. Years later... Kodak would go out of business and the vice president, or sorry, limited business, I think they still have some, but it's very small. The reason why they turned down Steve Sasson's really revolutionary idea of digital photography is they were like, listen, nobody wants that. Everybody wants film. And a vice president for Kodak actually said, they, when presented with the opportunity, they were so afraid of what they were going to lose, they couldn't see the future and they lost it. Palm Pilot, who at one point held the technology for organizational communication, thought that everybody wanted organization. And when Apple and BlackBerry came on the scene, they could not see that what people really wanted was not organization, but communication. And the direct result is eventually Palm Pilot, while they tried to catch up, could never make up the ground and always ended up being behind the eight ball and eventually folded. 
here's what we realize is that each of these companies thought the what was more important than the why. They were so caught up in what they were doing, they missed the why they were doing it. And as a result, they ended up losing opportunities. Some lost business altogether. For instance, Blockbuster thought what people wanted was a video rental experience. But what the reason why people went to Blockbuster in the first place is they wanted entertainment. They wanted a movie. Kodak thought that people would wanted film. They wanted something they could touch, something tangible. But what people wanted was not film, but memories. How many of you have cell phones loaded with pictures that you haven't even looked at yet? Or because you have children and they grab your phone and now all of a sudden you've got random pictures of the cat faded all blurry by the couch, right? Like I have more pictures than I can count because Kodak thought what people wanted was film, but what people really want is memories. And Palm Pilot thought that what people wanted was organization, but what people really wanted was ease of communication. Now here's why I bring this up. For a lot of people, even in this room right now, but a lot of people who are not here, church is a lot like Blockbuster, Palm Pilot, and Kodak. Churches become irrelevant to their lives. They see church as something that used to be important to them, but church kind of lost its way and stopped being the most important thing. And how many of you guys remember when Wednesday nights were sacred, when you had no sports on Wednesday nights, when everybody went to youth group, when even people went to church on a Sunday, even if they weren't Christian, because the church was the place to be. Hasn't been that way for decades, and yet how many churches still think it's that way? I know a lot of people that what's happened is this, is that they, they saw the church as something that was beneficial in their youth, but as they got older, they stopped seeing the relevance of it. And unfortunately, the church missed the boat in meeting them where they were, and they left. And now they're not just called unchurched, they're called dechurched. People who no longer feel the need for the value of a relationship with the body of Christ. And I'm going to tell you, part of it is the church's fault. Part of it is because we stop showing that the body of Christ has not just relevance, but that there can be life and vibrancy and newness in the church because we get more hung up on the what than the why. Now, this morning, we're starting this new series, and we're going to be talking about the why. And, and this last year, we moved into some new territory, some new ground. Our vision used to be Zion power for the journey. And what we realized is that God is starting to do some new things in our church and in our community. And now, and I know some of you are going to be sick of me saying this, but I want to make sure everybody knows it. Our new vision is to be a Tove church. What does Tove mean? For those of you who don't know that, it's the Hebrew word for good. We want to be a church who doesn't just do good in our community, but brings God's goodness into the world around us. And our mission statement, our mission, what we're about is we want to be a church where belonging and believing and becoming that truly you don't have to be a Christian to belong. You don't even have to have faith to belong, to be a part of what God is doing here. But let me be clear as all as I can be. We are unabashedly, unashamedly about Jesus Christ. That's who we are. And you might be coming because you're looking, you're searching for something, you're checking it out. And even if you don't believe, I'm so glad you're here because you don't have to believe to belong. We're going to see that in a text today. But we want to make sure our goal, what we really want to see is people believe in Jesus and become more like Jesus. And then this last year, we kind of have sowed into eight seeds, kind of mission fields, things that we want to see move into who we become as a culture. And what I want to, what we want to be careful of is we don't want to get so consumed with the what that we miss the why we're doing it. Because this is why churches have failed in the first place. 
The reason why we've lost people is we got so concerned, so consumed with the containers, the what we did, that we missed why we're doing it in the first place. We're doing it so that Jesus might be made famous in the world. Amen? And so I, I want to bring us into some texts here this morning. And, and I, I want to tell you, if you're a Bible person, if you're someone who struggles reading the Bible, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you do, but if you struggle reading the Bible, I get it, man. The Bible can be boring as all good. I'll get out. Like if you're suffering from insomnia, read numbers. Like you'll go to sleep real quick. And that's okay. You know, I believe all scripture is inspired, but not all scripture is inspired for the same purpose. Like some books in the Bible are just there so you can be like, glad we're not doing that anymore, right? I mean, that's the thing. But if you're one of those people who struggles with the gospels, like you're reading, you're like, I don't understand. It's, there's too much flowery language, too much description. I think the best book of the Bible you can read if you're someone who struggles with spiritual ADD is the book of Mark. I actually think Mark was written specifically for Christians that have ADD. This is how it works, okay? Now, I promise we're getting somewhere. I'm, I'm taking the plane off. The plane's going up. I promise it'll land, okay? So check this out. The book of Mark, it's, it's all about action. It, it doesn't go through flowery language. It doesn't even give a whole lot of descriptions. It's just Jesus does this, he does this, he does this. Oh, and then this happened. And then Jesus does this. And then there's more of this. And it's just action-packed. Go, 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 go. Because it's about a kingdom that's advancing in the world. And I want to start us before we get to our text this morning, which is going to be, quite frankly, the theme over the next 40 days and beyond leading us into Easter. Our theme for this year for Lent is awaken, but it's really what got you here won't get you there. And that God wants to awaken something in us. And, and we're going to talk about how God is moving and that not just in our church, but I believe God wants to move in your life. And you're going to find some things that are going to challenge perceptions, realities, things that you've been holding on to that quite frankly, God is saying, you know what, that's tired and old and I want something different for you. How many of you right now have things and you don't raise your hand? How many of you have things in your life right now that feel tired and old and you're like, that's not who or where I want to be. And you don't know what to do. We just talked about this spirit-filled life and that what it means to please the spirit and what it means to please the flesh and how that the fruit of the spirit is all practical stuff. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And so, but before we get there, we have to understand what is the human condition that sometimes gets in the way of what God wants to do? So I want to start, and I'm going to give us a, a very brief recap of the book of the, the first chapter of Mark and a little bit of Mark chapter 2, and we're going to land in a text in Mark chapter 2. So check it out. Mark chapter 1 begins with John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, is out proclaiming that a Savior is coming, one who is, he's unfit to tie his sandals, is coming, who's going to bring a new kingdom, the kingdom of God is coming. And then we see Jesus immediately who goes in and He's in the waters of the River Jordan with his cousin, and John the Baptist ends up baptizing Jesus, which we see that famous scene where the voice of the Father from heaven above says, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus like a dove, and that showing Jesus' identity. And then right after that happens, we see that John the Baptist gets arrested. And Jesus now begins his public ministry, and as he's going out, people are, he calls his first disciples, two fishermen brothers who own this lucrative fishing business, Simon and Andrew. 
And he says, hey, drop your nets, come and follow me to fish for men. And they do. And then Jesus goes out and on the Sabbath is where it begins. Now, this is important, okay? See, the religious leaders, the Pharisees were the blockbuster of the day. They were blockbuster in 2004, man. They were, they were the king of the hill. Everybody loved the Pharisees. Everybody wanted to be a Pharisee, but nobody felt they could. They were at the top. And one of the things that the Pharisees did is they set up a religious system that said, this is what it means to be a good Jew, to be a true Jew. You wanted to aspire to this. And one of the rules was you don't do anything on the Sabbath. That's Saturday for Jews. That's a holy day of rest. And yet here's Jesus. He's preaching in the synagogue and people are so impressed with Jesus's teaching and preaching because he preaches different than anybody else. He preaches with authority and power. And the Pharisees begin to take note of this. And then not just that, but on the Sabbath, a demon-possessed man comes up to him and Jesus casts out a demon out of this man. All on the Sabbath, which by the way was a big no-no. You don't do that on the Sabbath. That's work. And the Pharisees take note of this. Jesus then gets tired and he goes to take a day of some rest for himself because he's preaching and healing and doing all these things and his popularity and fame is growing all around him. And so Jesus goes away to a lonely place to pray and kind of spend time with his father. But the disciples being pressured by the popularity of Jesus go looking for Jesus because Jesus isn't around and people want him. So they find Jesus. They say, Jesus, the people are looking for you. What are you doing over here? You need to go over there. And so Jesus is like, all right, let's go. But he comes and he's like, listen, I'm tired of preaching here. I want to go over to people who haven't heard me yet. And so Jesus moves. This is all in Mark chapter one. First chapter of Mark, huge stuff going, boom, boom, boom. Jesus goes out and he begins to preach more and healing more and casting out more demons. And there's all this wonderful, frenetic, uh, uh, just stuff going on. And the popularity of Jesus is swelling. It's huge the amount of work that is taking place because God is doing something new. But all the Pharisees see is that Jesus isn't doing things the right way. He's not living by the standards that, that he feels or they feel he should. And then in Mark chapter 2, you have this beautiful scene, which many of you are probably familiar with the story, where Jesus is teaching in this town and he goes inside this house and the crowd is so big that people are pressing in and Jesus is in the middle of, let's say, the living room. I don't know exactly where he is. And four friends have another friend who's a paralyzed man who's been paralyzed since birth and they want to bring him to Jesus because they believe Jesus can heal him, but they can't get him to Jesus because it's too packed. He's too popular. And so they do what any good friends do, public destruction of property. They... They climb up on the roof. They carry their friend. They tear a hole in somebody else's house. Okay, let me ask you. If you had a meeting in your house and someone busted through your roof, would you be like, praise the Lord? No, you wouldn't be doing that. They bring him to Jesus and Jesus looks at the man and his first words are this, son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees immediately think to themselves, who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. He's a blasphemer. Jesus, knowing their heart, looks at him and says, hey, let me ask you this. Which is easier to do, to tell this man his sins are forgiven or tell him to get up and walk? And instantly the man gets up and is walking. And then right after this, we see Jesus has just healed a paralyzed man ticked off a bunch of the wrong people. And now Jesus finds this man named Levi. Levi's a tax collector. He would later become known as the Apostle Matthew. 
And tax collectors, nobody likes to pay taxes now, but you really hated it back then because the way the tax collector made his money was this. The Romans said, hey, here's the deal. Um, you need to collect money for us, but we want to incentivize you. So let's say the Roman taxes was 18%. Well, you're going to make your money by adding a fee on top of it, and you get to determine what that is. So often tax collectors, let's say the Roman government says 18%, they say your taxes are 60%. They became wealthy off of other people. This man was a Jewish tax collector. His people hated him. And Jesus walks up to Levi and says, hey, Levi, come and follow me. And one of the things that Jesus does that's so revolutionary is he then goes with Levi back to his house and he eats dinner with him and a whole bunch of sinners, un-Jewish, un-Christian people. And he does what's called table fellowship. Everybody say table fellowship. So now here's what table fellowship is, okay? And I want you to be, we don't really fully understand how big this was, but when you ate dinner with somebody, it was your way of saying that you approved of them, that who they were, that you believed in them, that you participated with them. And so Jesus, who is a rabbi, a popular religious rabbi, who is gaining more popularity and fame than blockbuster of the day, the Pharisees, Jesus eats dinner with them and they begin to think to themselves, who is this man that he eats with tax collectors and sinners? Because their assumption is he's eating. If he's eating with them, then he must be participating with them. I, don't, I know we don't have anybody in our culture today that if you were eating with the wrong people, we wouldn't have judgments. We absolutely do, don't we? 100%. And Jesus, knowing again the condition of their heart and hearing their grumbling, says, you know, here's the deal. I didn't come for all you put together people who have your religious stuff figured out, who think that you don't, you know, that you're righteous and you've got everything on the on the go, you're ready to go. I came for the broken and the lost. I came not for the righteous, but for the sinners. Because guess what? Healthy people don't need doctors, sick people do. And again, the Pharisees, all they could see was the threat. That was coming to them. Now, here's the thing. At this point, the Pharisees have been building a case against Jesus. All of Mark chapter one and the first part of Mark chapter two, you're seeing all these wonderful things, these huge opportunities. God is doing something new in the world and the Pharisees are only consumed with what he's not doing instead of what he is. And so they begin to case build and they're now looking for opportunities to trap Jesus. And one of the ways, there are two ways that Jews, religious people showed that they were more spiritual, spiritually mature than everybody else. In Christianity today, the way we do that is through bumper stickers and Christian t-shirts. But back then, the way you did it was that you fasted and you observed Sabbath. That was your way that you showed that you were more spiritually mature. You didn't just have a mug that said it. You actually did it, right? And so fasting was a big one. And the reason why they fasted, and, and here's the deal. I want you to hear this. Fasting is a good thing. God commands us to fast. God tells us that fasting is a good thing. We do it for different reasons. But they would organize a time of fasting for a specific reason. And here's what was happening. See, Israel had experienced discipline and God's judgment because they were not faithful to the Lord. And the Pharisees rose up in popularity because their whole vision was if we go back to faithfully serving God, being who God wants us to be, then maybe God will restore us. Maybe God will heal us and bring us back, bring us out of Roman occupation. Maybe, maybe God will restore us. And so they took something that was good, fasting, and they now said, this is the requirement. You have to fast at certain times. And John the Baptist followers, as well as the Pharisees, were fasting on the day. Now, here's where we come in Mark chapter 2. They come and they see, and here's what's happening. Jesus' disciples aren't fasting when everybody else is. 
Jesus' disciples are not fasting while the rest of them are all hungry and starving. His disciples are like, give me some of that. You're not eating that here, I'll take it. That's what they're doing, right? And they begin to make judgments. And they're judging because they're looking and saying, wait, Jesus is a rabbi. If he's really spiritual, he should be doing what we do. Why aren't his disciples fasting? And so they come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, we notice that it's the right time to fast. Now, by the way, God never said they needed to fast this way. This was a human condition. They come up and they say, Jesus, we notice your disciples aren't fasting. You may miss this, but it doesn't say Jesus isn't fasting. His disciples aren't. And Jesus kind of flips the script on them a little bit. He goes, um, when you're at a wedding, a wedding is a party. You don't fast during a festival. You don't fast in a party in a celebration. And, and he does something that Jesus does so often. He, he brings, by using one example, he actually brings us to another reality. And, and what you may miss is this, is that God's people, the Israelites, the Jews, were considered the bride of God. They were the bride of God. Now, the church is called the bride of Christ, which means our bridegroom is Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, why would they fast when the bridegroom is with them? We're celebrating. The kingdom of God is here. Why are you expecting them to fast? No one fasts right now. That's just not what you do. We're in a party. Of course they're not going to fast. And they missed it. But why did they miss it? Because somewhere along the way, they were convinced that what got them to where they were now at this very moment, what got them here was going to get them there, was going to move them into the future. Now, we're going to come to our text today, and I, and I want to make it clear, okay? We're going to press into some stuff that, quite frankly, is going to challenge you. It, it's going to challenge some realities for you. It's going to push into some things that might make you uncomfortable. Because here's the thing. Jesus likes to come into disruptive spaces. Just like Netflix disrupted Blockbuster, Jesus is going to disrupt some things in our lives. The reason why the Pharisees didn't like Jesus is he was disrupting the religious space. They had an idea of what it looked like to be God's people, to be a true follower of Yahweh, which is the proper name of God in the Old Testament given by Moses. In their mind, they had it cornered. The people liked it, but more importantly, they believed that God liked what they were doing. And so when Jesus comes in and doesn't do things the way they want him to, they immediately assume Jesus is in the wrong because, hey, we're the gold standard. You don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. Now, what does this have to do with us? Here's the thing. Some of us in this room are convinced that what got us here is going to move us into the forward, but in reality, we're stuck. We're stuck in the past. We're stuck in things that were good for a season, we're, are truly good. They're not bad. Things that were meant to be a blessing eventually become an obstacle if we're not careful. And so Jesus is going to push into some things because what God really wants to bring us to is that the kingdom of God is so much bigger than our myopic vision for the kingdom of God. We tend to think God's kingdom has to look a specific way. It's usually the way I like it. <laughs> that's just the reality, isn't it? If I like something, I assume that's what God likes too. And therefore everybody else should do what I like. You know, it's like, if I like a movie, everybody else should like that movie. If I like this worship song, everybody else should like this worship song. And that's human nature. It's part of what we do. And God is saying, no, 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 your limitations might get in the way of the blessing. And I'll tell you, sometimes our limited view of how God is moving in a church has gotten in the way of us as a church just like your limited view of the way God wants to work in your life is getting in the way of you receiving the blessing that God has for your life. 
God is in the business of doing new things. Now, Jesus is coming, and I, I want you to hear this. We're going to share or get to our text. I promise we're getting there. I told you, plane's up in the air, right? We're there. See, the, the Pharisees, instead of seeing the kingdom of God being preached and people repenting and returning back to God, all they saw was a threat to their kingdom. Instead of celebrating all the wonderful things that were taking place, they were threatened. Instead of celebrating people getting healed, set free from sin and oppression and demons cast out, they couldn't get past the fact that Jesus was doing these things on a Sabbath. Instead of seeing God's heart for the forgotten, the lost, and the spiritually dead, all they could see was a man sitting and eating with sinners because that's not what good Jewish people do. See, when we use that word, that's not, we've never, those can become, well, evidence of our heart, that our heart is getting in the way of new things. See, Jesus didn't fit their brand of religion, and what they didn't realize was that Jesus is the brand. Let me say that again, because I preached on this last week. Sometimes the Z gets in the way of the cross. Sometimes we're so consumed about making sure that Zion has a great brand that we forget our brand is Jesus. Sometimes we get so consumed thinking that our brand of evangelical Christianity is what matters when what matters is Jesus. And when we get in the way of that, what we're showing the world is that, guess what, we're not worth being a part of. And I believe that God is doing something new in the church, not just in Zion, but in the United States. God is awakening something in the church right now across the world where for the first time in probably a decade or more, I think the church is becoming a place that again, people are going, there's hope there because more and more churches are getting awakened to something new that God is doing. And our desire, our heart as a church is we want to be that, but you know where it starts with? Is with you and with me. See, how can I expect God to move in our church when I am the church? You are the church. That means if God is moving in the church, he's moving in us. Not through an institution, not through programs, but he's moving through us as a people who are saying, God, disrupt the space in my life. Now, here's the thing. How many of you like disruptions? <laughs> I don't know anybody who's like, man, I just love a good disruption. You should be Megan and Derek working with me. I disrupt all the time. I'm not joking. <laughs> I've actually given Megan permission to say, not right now, Jason. <laughs> because here's the thing. Nobody likes disruptions. And when God comes in, he wants to disrupt the space in your life. Because what got you here may not get you there. Because the things that, that you thought were so important to you, the things that made you successful, the things that brought healing into your life at one point, now might be coming obstacles at another point. And, and this is what we're going to get into our text. And here Jesus is going to talk about this issue of fasting. And again, I want you to think about this. We just celebrated Lent. We just started the season of Lent. I don't know why we call it celebration, but we started Lent and Ash Wednesday. And, and here's the thing. Ash, Lent is a beautiful tradition, but nowhere in the Bible does it command it. And when you do Lent, because you're like, you know what I'm giving up this year? I'm giving up sweets because I need to lose 10 pounds. You've now lost, you've put the what over the why. You've mistaken the beauty of Lent as a reminder of our dependence on Jesus. Um, I can always tell Ash Wednesday, you, I have three conversations every Ash Wednesday. Now, I was in a tradition that didn't do ashes. I went to a Baptist church. That wasn't a thing for us. When I first got introduced to it, I remember seeing somebody. I'm like, hey, you got something on your forehead. Wow, you all have things on your forehead. What am I missing right now, right? And, and here's the three conversations I have every Ash Wednesday. We were out to lunch as a staff, and you always have the first one. Oh, hey, happy Ash Wednesday. And you see the fellow Ash heads, right? That's what we're calling them now. Woo, Ash heads. 
And then you have these people who do this one. Oh, it's Ash Wednesday already? I should probably go do that. And half of these people haven't been to church in a year. But it's Ash Wednesday, because guess what? That's what you need to do. It's, it's that time to do that tradition. And then you have my third favorite one, which is the, um, did y'all go to a concert or something? Like, is that like a stamp to a club? Like, I'm, I'm missing something. People who don't know what it is that they're doing. And here's the thing. The beauty of Lent, the blessing of Lent, is when we realize the purpose of Lent is to point us to Jesus. But when we just do it because it's what we do, we've missed the point. And that's true of any tradition in the church. We get so hung up on what we do, we forget the why we do it. Communion. How often do we take communion and not actually think about what's really taking place? There's something holy and beautiful that takes place in it. It's so easy to fall into. And here, fasting is one of them. Jesus is pointing, and Jesus has no problem with fasting. In Matthew chapter 6, during the Sermon on the Mount, he says these words, when you fast, which implies God still expects his people to fast. And the reasons why we fast, in Joel 2.12, we're called to fast out of times of repentance. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. The, the why is to return to God. The what is fasting. But when we confuse those two, all of a sudden, the why becomes fasting and the what becomes fasting. And what started off as a blessing has now become an obstacle. Sometimes we fast in times of crisis and mourning. I'll tell you right now with the stuff going on in Ukraine, if you feel called to fast, this is a great time to do it. Not because we think that by fasting, we're going to somehow manipulate God into doing things. We fast to depend on God and saying, God, we need you now more than ever. If you don't feel called to fast, don't fast. Don't do it because a church program tells you to. Do it because you've sought the Lord and said, Lord, what do you want of me? Sometimes we fast just simply to show our dependence on the Lord. But somewhere along the way, just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and John the Baptist disciples, somewhere along the way, we confuse the what with the why. We assumed that what got us here would get us there. And what Jesus is going to bring us into in this text is a reality that sometimes God needs to do new things. And he has to do them to break through paradigms. By, but like Blockbuster, Kodak, and Palm, and so many other businesses, churches, and Christians before and after, sometimes we can't see the future because we're so busy living and looking in the past. Uh, I feel like this is a word. I didn't say this first service. I feel like this is a word right now for someone here. The thing that's keeping you from experiencing the fullness of a blessing of God is that you're living in the past of a sin. That you, you've done some things in your life, and I don't know if it's a marriage or what, but there's something going on where you are so caught up believing that, that that sin, that thing you did before, God will never allow you to work and to bless you again. And I want to tell you, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Sometimes the past that keeps us is the past mistake instead of living in the beauty of the redemption of the cross. But for others of you, it's a tradition. There were things that were a blessing to you when you were younger and they got you one place, but now you've fixated and locked on those things and you're missing newness and wholeness and a new opportunity. And the way Jesus wants to do this is by doing a thing that Jesus does. Jesus tells stories. See, over and over again through the, para, through the, the, the Gospels, we see that the way Jesus wants to change our paradigm is not by attacking the problem directly, but by telling stories because we are creatures of stories. Psychology tells us that we actually don't know how to live in the world without stories. Every single one of us has a story. 
I have a story, you have a story. We have stories about this moment. We have stories that define us. And so Jesus, in order to change paradigms, tells stories. And these stories are hard to hear and hard to understand at times because often they have nothing to do with what he was just talking about. And the reason why Jesus does that is he's looking for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear where God is moving. And, and here he's going to tell a story. And, but before I, I do that, um, I want to do what we've been doing. Would you stand with me as we read our text this morning? Plane's now getting ready to descend, okay? So stay with me. Mark 2, 21 through 22. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst, the skins, the both, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus, uh, my friend of mine is an Anglican priest, sent me, he sent me uh, 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 an article that has, if Jesus was a college professor, how would he be rated? He's really funny. Um, here are some of them. Very inconvenient class. Always holds lectures on top of mountains in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, but never close to campus. Feels like a class for farmers. Hope you like talking about seeds. Wheat seeds, mustard seeds, 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 seeds. In Iowa, we're like, and? <laughs> Don't take this class if you care about your GPA. Treats everything like pass-fail. Only cares if, you fa if you're failing the class, so good luck getting the A minus up to an A. And then my favorite is, tells too many stories, easy to get them off track during lecture. Some of you are like, Jason, what's your point? Get on track, dude. <laughs> Preach. Here's the thing. Wineskins are a very impractical container. Back then, glass wasn't readily available. So what you did is you formed a wineskin out of an animal hide. And when you put wine into the wineskin, you put new wine in, as the wine ferments, it expands and the wineskin expands with it. But eventually the wineskin can no longer contain, if you put something new in there, it can't expand with it. It's expanded to its full capacity. Let me give you an example that maybe might help you better understand. How many of you have iPhones? How many of you guys remember when you had like an iPhone 3 and the iPhone 7 came out and you're like, how come my thing's not working? Because no matter how much you try, there's a limitation with hardware and software. If you have an iPhone 2 and we're now an iPhone 13, every software update, the hardware can't keep up. That's what Jesus is talking about, is that wineskins have a limitation. And so when God wants to do something new, he will often bring a new container because what's old cannot fit the new. And that's not just true of church, that's true of your life. There are old habits, old patterns that were not bad. They got you to a place of success. But now they're limiting your growth. They're limiting the new things that God wants to do in your life. Some of you, you have old habits and old patterns, and God's like, no, you should be getting rid of those anyways. But here's the deal. We are creatures of comfort, aren't we? And what we do is we lock into patterns and go, this must be the thing. Just like Pharisees, just like Blockbuster, we get caught in thinking, no, this is it. But God is saying, I am doing new things and I want to do new things in your life, but you've got to be willing to let go of some things. And it's not that the old is bad. There's nothing wrong with traditions. But when traditions become the why, Instead of the what, we miss the opportunity of what God wants to do in our lives. Let me ask you right now, some of you have patterns, habits, behaviors, 
old containers that God is saying, that doesn't serve you anymore. You need to get rid of it. Maybe your marriage is struggling because you're living in an old wineskin and you're saying, God, do something new, but you keep on doing things the same way over and over. Definition of an insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different. We all know it, but how many of us actually apply it? God wants to do new things in our church. He wants to do new things in our lives, but we need to get past the what into the why. If you're looking for God to move in your life for new wine to come in, you need to leave space. Now, here's what I want you to hear. The new wine is the move of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is not new wine. It was back then. The gospel never changes. The gospel is the same everywhere, but you know what does change? Culture, the world around us. The gospel never changes. The new wine is the move of the Spirit in God's people and in your life. God's Spirit wants to move new in and through you. But some of us, myself included, have old wineskins that are getting in the way. And so Jesus started this off not by talking about wine, but by talking about clothes. And I want to bring something that might blow your mind. Did you know that according to historical data, if you have more than two pairs of underwear, you're rich? Most people didn't have clothes. They had, they had one set of clothes and that was it. And so what they did in the ancient world was this. You wore your clothes until literally they fell off your body. Now, when I was a kid, I, used, I was really rough on my jeans and my mom would sew them with patches, right? But back then they would do the same thing. If, a, if, a, if clothing tore, you put a patch on it. But here's the thing. When you wash clothing, clothing shrinks. So you don't put a new piece of clothing to patch an old piece of cloth because that old cloth is already shrunk. Now when you put that new patch on it, what happens? The clothing tears worse and you do more destruction. Here's what happens in churches. Sometimes God is trying to do something new and we try and put that new thing over the container of the old and then it causes more damage than good. We have this incredible blessing. We are one church with two communities. We have a traditional service. Traditional service is beautiful. I was not, I want, I want you to hear this. I wasn't raised in a traditional church. I didn't want, well, I wasn't raised in church, but when I came to faith, my church was trying to move into contemporary. I've never really connected with the traditional until I realized the beauty of knowing that for some of, some of the things we do there are over a thousand years old, that when we pray the Lord's Prayer together, we're doing something that is connected to a beautiful ritual that is meant to connect us back to Jesus. That when we do absolution of sins, when we do confession of sins, there's something holy and beautiful that takes place unless we're just doing it because that's what Lutherans do. We have our own traditions here. doesn't matter what church you're part of. We all have them. And the minute that tradition becomes more important than Jesus, than the object, the reason why we do that thing is we've missed the point. And so here's the question that I have for you this morning, and I want to invite the worship team to come up here as we're looking at this. And we're going to be going in, and I want to tell you right now, we're going to press into some things that Jesus is going to disrupt some space in our church, and he's going to disrupt some space in your life if you let him. Because Jesus likes to disrupt things. And if you want to move into a season of new wine, it starts with learning to know the things that please the Holy Spirit and listening and learning and discerning. And God is starting to move in, in your heart and in your life. And the reason why you're so hesitant to move forward is because that old container is safe. That old container is what you know, but sometimes that old container is filled with mold and rot and grossness. Other times it's beautiful because it reminds us, it brings us back to the past. How many of you have a favorite worship song that's older than 10 years old? Come on now. <laughs> you know what the problem with our modern worship is? 
we're so quick to go, well, if it's older than three years old, that's an old song. We only do new stuff. There are songs that I, to this day, when every time I hear them, I'm brought back to my earlier love for Jesus when the world seems so much simpler and yet God was still just as faithful then as he is now. Sometimes there's beauty in that. I want to share one old container that I had in my life. And, and here's what we're bringing this into is that God wants to do new things. That's what God is in the business of. He is a God of the new. He's a God who moves into newness. But the way he does it, sometimes we have to surrender those old wineskins, those old containers to make space for God to do new things in our lives. So I've shared this from the stage many times that when I was younger, I didn't understand love. I thought that what it meant to be a good Christian was that I debated with people, I argued with people, I shamed people into the gospel. And I thought that was the goal and it worked for me, for me. And it didn't help that my pastors used to say, Jason, you have a gift of boldness. What they really meant was, Jason, you're a jerk. And it worked for me. Like it fed, it fed all my ego. Like I thought I was blockbuster. There were no other Christians as bold as I was. And my good friend, Scott Walters, I had just graduated high school. I was going to Grossmont Junior College. I went for a year and a half. I got 17 credits, nine of which were volleyball. True story. And I was going into a humanities class. And my friend Scott Walters, who was many years older, like six years older than I was, at that point, that was many years older because I was 19. And Scott said, Jason, I want to challenge you. See, you're going to go into college and you think you know everything. You think you know more than they do, that you're smarter than they are, that you know more than they, than they are, that you're wiser than they are. But here's the deal. You're going to go into people that are college professors. They have PhDs, people that live more life. It's not going to work for you, but more importantly, it's going to make Jesus look bad. So I'm going to challenge you, Jason. When you take this humanity class, I know the professor. When you go and instead of debating, listen, talk less, listen more, ask questions, see what happens. Now, here's the thing. In my heart, I knew I was right. And I'm like, I'll take your challenge. I'm going to show you that my way is the right way. And so I came into the first class and no lie, the teacher's name was Jan Gervais. I still remember to this day. She had blonde hair. She was a beach lady. Like she was at the beach all the time when she was younger. Her hair was sun crisped. Like it was brittle. Her face was leathered with the, with the, the, the tans of many decades standing in the sun. And she started off the class by saying, if you're a Christian, you're going to hate my class. I don't like Christians. They don't like me. And I was like, awesome. Challenge accepted. <laughs> And so she began to do like share what she was about. And she was offensive. She shared pictures and made us read stories and watch movies. And, but here's the deal. I decided to take Scott's challenge. And instead of arguing, I asked more questions. And eventually she started asking me questions. And by the, no lie, the middle of the semester, she knew that I was a Christian at this point. And she said, Jason, I think it'd be great. Would you be willing to sing a Christian song? for at our class. And I was like, really? She's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay. So I brought my guitar and I sang Stephen Curtis Chapman's More to This Life. Do I have any Stephen Curtis Chapman fans out there? What, what got to be true? You know what I'm talking about? All right, there we go. It's a great adventure. Sorry, nobody else got that. It's all good. And I sang that. Now, last day of class, last day of class, she said, Jason, will you walk me to my car? I said, sure, Jan. I'm carrying her box I take it to her car and she goes, Jason, you're one of the few Christians I've ever met that I like. If you were ever a pastor at a church, I'd go to your church. Scott's challenge to me didn't just show me a new container. It destroyed the old one. 
And I will tell you, the man, the pastor that I am today was formed because Scott was willing to show me that God wanted to do something different in my life. I needed a new container for a new wine, and I continue to see that. But here's the bigger part. It didn't just make me a more gracious Christian. It helped me understand God's grace and mercy and kindness and love in a way I'd never understood before. What are the old containers in your life? Would you stand with us? We're going to close in our final worship song. And I want to leave you with a challenge this morning. What containers in your life, what are the habits, the behaviors, what are the choices, what are the beliefs that are hindering you that maybe were a blessing in your youth but have now become obstacles in your adulthood? Maybe as you've gotten older, maybe there are things that never were meant to be what God wanted from you. What is God wanting to do? And as we press into this series, My heart, my prayer, my desire is that you would pray this with me. Lord, do something new. So let's come and worship the Lord. If you haven't brought your tithes and offerings, you can bring them up now. God wants your heart and your life more than anything else. Let's love the Lord. Amen.